Beloved, August 16th is a big day in the life of our church. It will prove to be a definitive day in many, many ways. On that day, we will vote on our deacon's recommendation about a proposed vision and set of priorities. That day also will make a commitment to that we're calling the Beach Haven Promise Day. You find an insert in your bulletin for some promises that I believe the Lord is calling us to make to Him and to Beach Haven. And then that evening, we will begin that great victorious movement with our vision and priorities with the Bible conference that we're calling Bouncing Back and Moving Forward with uh, Tommy Fountain, who Tommy Fountain Sr., that is, pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Monroe, uh, Georgia. Much of the spirit that we need uh, was, for this was not really demonstrated very well by a new Navy recruit. He was accustomed to having all of his requests met and was somewhat privileged in his background. And he came to his commanding officer one day and said, Sir, I need a pass to be gone to a wedding this weekend. And the officer wanted to accommodate it, and he said, Okay, but you've got to be back Sunday night by 7 p.m. He said, Well, sir, you don't understand. Uh, I am a part of the wedding. I'm in the wedding. And the officer said, Son, you don't understand. You're not in a wedding. You're in the Navy. Now, that's oftentimes the heart and spirit. In fact, that's always the heart and spirit with which we must approach the Christian faith and our walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the commander of this ship. He is the admiral or the general, whatever branch in the military to which you want to compare him. In fact, he's above it all. And all in life is to conform to his will. He's articulated that in the Great Commission. And this is demonstrated marvelously in the biblical storyline that I want to cover with you for just a moment. It is, in fact, in your skeletal outline on the back of your worship guide. To cover Genesis to Revelation, we would need to describe it this way. God created a kingdom for His Son. He dearly loves His Son and wants His Son to be the heir of all things. And that is why He created the heavens and the earth. And He dispatched Adam and Eve to tend that, to expand that, to be co-rulers or vice-rulers or assistant rulers to His Son, Jesus Christ. The enemy in a a contrary rival came to tempt them to commit treason, and they fell into that, and they fell, and God sentenced them to the death penalty in Genesis chapter 3. But God was not satisfied with doing that with them or the entire earth, and so He initiated a plan to demonstrate what His kingdom would look like and to ready the earth for restoration to that kingdom. And that essentially describes Genesis chapter 4 to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. When the right time came, he sent someone to pay the sentence, the execution, the death penalty of the whole world because all the world had sinned and was in sin. And when he came to pay the death penalty, it happened to be none other than the heir himself, Jesus Christ. And so the king himself gave himself for all the earth. And when Jesus Christ bled upon that cross, he was suffering the death penalty for the human race is what he was doing and for sinners. And so he satisfied the court sentence in the Gospels. To get this news around the earth, the Father not only raised him from the dead, but he commissioned embassies and ambassadors. And that's what we call Christians in churches. In fact, I want to ask you to circle that in your skeletal outline. Embassies and ambassadors. That describes the book of Acts all the way to Jude. And we are actually in that same trajectory. This church is an embassy for the Lord. We represent the kingdom of God. And every follower of Christ is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. 
and we communicate this news to the world. We enter the camps of rebels and tell them, God loves you. Your king loves you. He's willing to give you amnesty. He's willing to cancel your sins and the record that goes with it. If you will repent and bow the knee before the king and trust his grace and trust his mercy because he's died and risen again. Well, this offer has a shelf life to it. There's an expiration date to it that none of us knows, but the Lord himself. And one day this will be withdrawn and he will evacuate these embassies in the resurrection. And before war, every nation evacuates its embassies. And that is exactly what will take place. He will evacuate us by the resurrection from the dead. Christ will split the eastern sky. He will shout with the voice of an archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain shall meet the Lord in the air with Him. And then the Lord will begin to prepare the earth and the the entire universe for the return of His Son. Before His Son returns, He is so zealous and so committed to making sure that there is nothing evil, nothing offensive that comes anywhere near His Son. Jesus Christ has suffered already, and in His Father's estimation, Jesus Christ has suffered enough. He will not allow His Son to suffer another moment. will not allow Him to suffer another offense. And so we find described in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 18 an enormous and thorough and complete purging of all the earth and all the evil. Well, why doesn't He do it now? Well, let's say He did it tonight at 11 o'clock. Where will you and I be at midnight? He's patient until that day. But until then, He is patient. However, in that time, when the offer of grace reaches His expiration date, He will purge everything from the earth that offends His holiness and that injures and wounds. And everything then, Everything then that displeases Him and breaks the human heart, He will eliminate. And everything that pleases Him, He will make solid and establish it and make it permanent. And then Jesus Christ will come again in victory and in glory. And He will take possession of the earth. The president is elected in November of a presidential election year, but does not take office until January. Jesus Christ was elected by the Father to be king of all at the resurrection. He's not yet taken possession, but beloved, January is on its way, and he will come again. He will take it all, and then he'll take possession of his kingdom. He will judge and level all sentences in the great white throne judgment, and then he will restore the kingdom of Eden. In fact, if you'll compare the first two chapters of the Bible with the last two chapters of the Bible, you will find similar themes. In fact, I think you'll find identical themes. God began with a kingdom in a garden, and God will finish it with the kingdom of the Garden of Eden. Only it's going to be more glorious and more expanded and more fulsome and more and more of what God wants. And then, not only that, but to repeat what Vance Havner said, he said, you find no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible, and thank God you find no devil in the last two chapters of the Bible. All of that eliminated completely and thoroughly. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the biblical storyline, and what I want to say to you is this. Welcome to the real world. This biblical storyline is the real world. Everything else is a human fantasy, is a human human invention. Malcolm Muggeridge, the British journalist, gave some lectures on Christ and the media more than 40 years ago, and he said that much of what we do in the media is a fantasy. We don't cover all the news. We cover what we think you need to know. And even when we cover something that we think you need to know, we don't cover it all. 
And too often it is shaped and it is, um, it is arranged according to our own biases. Sometimes we don't identify, he said. In fact, he said one time uh, we uh, emphasized the fantastic nature and the mythological nature of the media in a program we were producing. We were outside making a clip, a film clip, outside and someone had to bring in artificial turf and artificial grass because the real grass did not show up very well on television. May I say to you, that's not only true for journalism in many respects. That is true for nearly everything in human life. Most of what we deal with is a human fantasy, and most of what we deal with is a human myth. Not everything. But the real thing is the kingdom of Jesus Christ articulated through His Great Commission. And so as we declare the authority of the Great Commission today, let me welcome you to the real world. This is the world according to the God who is the only one with a track record that is worthy of all life and all trust. And so, because of that, Beach Haven is proposing a vision. Beach Haven Baptist Church will magnify Christ as Lord by building the peoples of the Athens region into great commissionaries. Most of this is rather self-evident, but I'm hoping we'll take the opportunity with the term great commissionaries to brand what it is that we do. There are some churches that produce merely church members. There are some churches that produce um, merely people who attend and merely people who give. There are some churches that produce people who create trouble. We want this church to do far more than that. We want this church to produce great commissionaries. And when the world thinks about Beach Haven, they will think about Beach Haven as great commissionaries as much as we think about the cola companies producing Coca-Cola and Pepsi, as much as we think about Brett's producing the best food in the county, as much as we think about other elements and other brands, Beach Haven will be a church full of great commissionaries. This is a term, by the way, that is really profoundly familiar to you and probably the entire Christian world, in fact, some of the world outside the church. It is made up of great commission. Most Christians are familiar with that. We've been using the term for 200 years. But it's also made up of another term. And if you look at this, great co-missionaries. And indeed, that's what we are. We come alongside the mission movement and stand in support of it and act upon it and promote it. Our priorities then that we're proposing next Sunday are Christ-likeness, worship, Sunday school, discipleship, and evangelism. And so next Sunday we'll have a Beach Haven Promise Day to commit ourselves to these things. Now in our text this morning, from Acts 22 to 26, Luke recorded how Paul implemented the Great Commission into his missionary service. In fact, in chapter 22, you will find he pursued the Great Commission before an angry mob. And then in chapter 23, he pursued it before the Jewish High Council. In chapter 23 and 24, he pursued it before the governor Felix. And then in chapter 25, he pursued it before Porcius Festus. And then in chapter 26, King Agrippa II heard the word and the Great Commission before or from the Apostle Paul. Well, why is this? Because even when this little obscure Jewish missionary stood before royal courts and angry crowds, the Great Commission was in force even then. It was the authority and it defined the moment and it should for all the earth, all the church, and all followers of Jesus Christ. Look back with me in chapter 21, verse 40, as Paul's standing before an angry mob. 
Verse number 40 of chapter 21 could probably be moved to chapter 22 without any disruption to the text. And after Paul was beaten and after he was rescued by Roman soldiers, it says, So when the commander had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying essentially the gospel through his testimony. And chapter 22 includes that. And so before this angry mob, he communicates the gospel. Chapter 23, verse number 6, he does as well before a council that is trying him. He finds that the deck is stacked against him legally in this proceeding. So in chapter 22, verse 6, he notices that the crowd is divided theologically between the Sadducees and Pharisees. Paul had been a Pharisee, and in some instances, his theology converged with theirs. And so he cries out, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. And the whole crowd splits apart. They begin to battle one another, and they lose attention on Paul because here he preaches the resurrection from the dead and gains sympathy from some of them. And chapter 24, beginning in verse number 24, the apostle Paul is there as well. And he's defending himself before Felix. And he cries out, or speaks, excuse me, Luke records that Paul had spoken out. And he says, after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered. Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So Paul preached the gospel to Felix. Before Porcerus Festus, he did as well. In chapter 25, verse number 19, he reports, that is Festus, to Agrippa, that the Jews had some questions against Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Now, this is not Paul speaking. This is actually a governor reporting what he said. And Paul was so forceful, anointed by the Spirit, so accurate in his declaration of the gospel that a pagan king could repeat it just as he had heard it. And then standing standing before Agrippa, in chapter 26, verse 22, he speaks to him. Chapter 26, verse number 22, he shares the gospel there. In a lengthy speech, he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Why did Paul have the temerity to interject the gospel into leading proceedings, and without any invitation from the rulers of the age or an angry mob, declare the gospel? Because the Great Commission is authority over the church and over every Christian life. It is the authority. Well, how is it the authority? Well, there are several ways. And the first is this. The Great Commission defines genuine royalty. May I caution you in this day when we're entering a presidential election season, Please do not put your hope ultimately in human rulers. I will tell you the most effective and even the most optimistic among them, the most optimistic and most effective among them will struggle to implement their agenda that you may approve of without some taint of compromise that would be terribly offensive to the holiness of God. You've got to be very, very careful of hoping 
of hoping in human rulers. But when we talk about Jesus Christ, there is never any need, never any need to bridle your enthusiasm about Him. There's never any need to be cautious about the rule of Jesus Christ. He may be patient, but He's always correct. He may delay His coming and His kingdom for a time because of His mercy and patience. But beloved, Jesus Christ, when He implements His kingdom, will not do it with the taint of compromise. He will not do it with the taint of uh, any degree of changing of His agenda. Jesus Christ will not accommodate anything unholy. It will be thoroughly and completely pure because that is precisely who Jesus is and He will yield absolute authority. He is the only one who offers the hope of victory without the taint of compromise. And that's why Paul had the temerity to preach in Rome. The royals of Rome define reality in Rome and they projected an image of strength, intimidation, and invincibility. Rome was the highest of the highest and thought much of itself. But a few centuries after the introduction of the Christian faith, the Roman Empire was curdled up in the fetal position, collapsed and gone, and the Christian faith was on its way to becoming a global faith. It covered up, the Euro- it covered up Europe and it covered up the East because Jesus Christ is Lord, while Rome sat on the ash heap of nations. The Great Commission not only assumes the love of God and the lostness of humanity, but the Great Commission also assumes and insists upon the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Why do we go into the world? Because Jesus Christ owns it all. Jesus Christ is Lord. It assumes Jesus Christ has the authority to send the church into the world. And therefore, any message or any church or any philosophy, or any worldview, or any education system that does not take serious account of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a fantasy. It is not a reality. It is a human fantasy that God mercifully tolerates in this age until we can penetrate it with the gospel. And anything other than unbridled zeal for the name of Jesus Christ and His Lordship and a zeal that replicates the Father's zeal, and the zeal that is now around yonder throne is in itself a fantasy. To lay hold of reality, we must first lay hold of the Lordship of Jesus Christ because He is above all other royals and names. He is Lord. And so this means that Jesus Christ defines Christianity. This means Jesus Christ defines the church. Jesus Christ defines marriage. Jesus Christ defines sexuality. Jesus Christ defines ministry and values and family and marriage and peace and vision. And the Great Commission insists that Jesus Christ defines it all because He said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. The Great Commission defines genuine royalty. But there's a second thing. The Great Commission defines genuine humanity as well. There are some poor naive souls who unfortunately define all persons as basically good. Probably the biggest joke ever pulled on the human race. Many insist that we're autonomous. Another equal joke. Many insist that we're the master of ourselves. And I guess in a political sense, many of these things are true and should be true. But when it comes to a full accounting of reality, they are a terrible joke. And that humanity is worthy of love and worthy of acceptance. Oh, I sure hope everyone will have it, but as far as being worthy, that too is an enormous fraud perpetrated upon the human race. You don't find that in the text at all. In fact, what you find in Acts 21 verse 26 is that the most moralistic and religious and rigid people on all the earth are in the temple celebrating worship 
and in a moment proved themselves to be a tinderbox of anger and murderous hatred against the truth and the Apostle Paul. It's precisely what happens. They're in the temple and they want to kill a man. Now, you would think that the religious, the rigid, the generous would have far more compassion and patience. But what they are unveiling is that religion is not enough to make a man or woman right with God or right with one another. They're in the temple and they want to kill a man. And then, in chapter 23, verse 26, they address Felix as the most excellent. And yet Felix looks for a bribe from the Apostle Paul. In chapter 25, verse 23, Herod enters into the court with great pomp and with the prominent men and women of the city as uh, uh, in their regal royalty and their display. And yet, when Paul gives him the opportunity to meet the God of heaven, the God that he has known from the Old Testament, he rejects the word in that time. You'd think that this crowd and these rulers had it all together. You would think that they were self-made, and you would think that they were independent, and that they had need of nothing, that they were very accomplished, and yet the Apostle Paul preaches the gospel to them as well, and he does so because they needed it. The Great Commission defines all of humanity as in need of the name and the knowledge of Christ and His gospel. God has sent the gospel through the Great Commission to the world because the world needs it. Now, somebody might say, well, wait a minute. What about if the unevangelized who've never heard? Aren't they safe in eternity? And I'd say, oh, no. That's why Jesus sent us into the world. The cruelest thing you could do is send missionaries into the world if they were safe because then that would give them the opportunity to reject the gospel. They are not safe. Therefore, He has sent us into the world. And so... The world needs the gospel, therefore God has sent it to them. And this is a great consternation to many people on the earth. It is a very difficult thing for some people to humble themselves before God. I must let you know, however, in order to be made right with God, we all have to choke down the reality of humility and our guilt and condemnation before God, or there's no hope. Well, that is offensive. Well, 1 Peter 2.8 speaks of Jesus as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. The stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Most of those outside the faith of Jesus Christ, before they ever get to Jesus Christ, will probably be offended at some point or another. At some point or another. That's generally the case because they have to choke down their guilt before God and His authority and His right to command the earth and set the terms Himself of salvation and entrance into heaven and entrance into the kingdom without consulting with the human race. I need to let you know, and this may be a rude awakening for some, but God does not run a democracy. It's the best government for the earth among humans, but when it comes to He and His Son, He is not into democracy. God is into monarchy. He is a king. He doesn't take advice. He takes over. And so when He comes into a life, He becomes the master and He becomes the Lord. He sets the terms of salvation. This can be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to some. I remember the summer between my college years and before I went to Southwestern Seminary, a friend and I spent some time in a party district of Shreveport, Louisiana. He had built a cross, a quite heavy one as well. He must have found the heaviest wood in the lumber yard and built it. And he and I carried it on our shoulders through this party district in Shreveport called 
the bridge. And it was quite a fascinating thing. I have to be quite honest with you. It really was. It attracted a lot of attention. There were two very large bodybuilders who appreciated what we were doing and promised to be our bodyguards. And uh, squirmy little fellows that we were, we, we needed them because we were terribly, terribly intimidated. But we would go through handing out tracts, telling people that God loved them, and taking the opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. You know something? Not a one of those drunk college students ever gave us any trouble. The bodybuilders did not either. Oh, not at all. Those whose lives could be defined by moral perversity didn't give us a single bit of trouble at all. None whatsoever. In fact, the ones we talked to were quite, uh, when, we, when we had some time to speak with them, were, felt quite guilty about being where they were and doing what they were doing. The only difficulty we ever had in that ministry that summer was from a seminary student who stepped out from a bar and confronted us and said these words, pointing at that cross, he said, that offends me. And I thought, well, I believe you. But it offended him that we used the cross of Jesus Christ to define the faith in what we were doing. What, a remar- what an awful, awful thing. That is precisely what happened there. And the truth is, it can happen in many places as well. Oh, we weren't there to offend. Uh, we were there to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ and invite people to Christ. And some of them did come uh, to the Lord. The truth is, is that the Great Commission stands with the bloodstained cross before the whole world and says, you have got to deal with this. You've got to get past your offense You've got to get past the need for humility and find Jesus Christ and yield all to Him. There is a great commission because we need it. But there's a third thing that the Great Commission does. The Great Commission not only defines genuine royalty and humanity, but the Great Commission defines genuine amnesty. Michael Irvin was the Hall of Fame wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s and up until a few years ago. And in his 20s, he spent an awful lot of his time getting in trouble in the Dallas area. He was quite reckless and irresponsible. And today, and really since the induction into the Hall of Fame, he speaks to an awful lot of young NFL players, giving them counsel and trying to keep them out of trouble. Michael is wised up. When he was 41 years old, back in 2007, he was interviewed about his life before he wised up and began to behave right. In fact, I think Emmett Smith had an awful lot to do with Michael coming to Christ and uh, helping him turn to Jesus, uh, for which we should all, of course, be grateful. But in the interview, Michael said, people may let you move past things, but they don't let you forget things. They'll let you move past it, but they will not let you forget it. Do you know what amnesty is? Amnesty is forgiven a political crime and then, not only that, but removing all record of it so the court never remembers it again. In other words, a person with amnesty before a political entity is able to enjoy not only forgiveness from the court, but also the forgetfulness of the court. And God through Christ offers that to everyone who will repent and believe. Now the religions of the world offer amnesty by virtue, by merit, by spirituality, by, in other words, impossible human means, and there is no hope. But Jesus Christ offers it by repentance and faith. Look at chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. 
The Lord says to the Apostle Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, God is willing to forget our blindness. God is willing to forget our demonism. And in their place, give and grant forgiveness and an inheritance. Now watch this. The judge of all the earth summons you before his bar. And because of faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ, with one ruling, he is willing to erase our crimes and to erase our record. And with another ruling, adopts us and writes us into his will. That is what it means to come to Jesus Christ as Savior. Criminals are transformed and they're standing before God. And then they are brought into the family. And so God the Father and all of God no longer judges, but instead embraces into a family relationship. And friend, that is precisely what this God is inviting you to do. And in chapter 26, verse number 20, this is all you must do. You should repent and turn to God, but turn to God in a way that will produce works that are befitting with repentance. In other words, you come to Jesus Christ with repentance and faith, but you need to understand, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ will produce works that are consistent with that decision for Jesus Christ. And that's what He is inviting you to. He's inviting you now, and in just a moment, we'll give you the opportunity to turn to Jesus Christ. Our staff will stand here in the front, and as you have need, why don't you come and speak with them? And they'll be glad to help you today with whatever decision you need to make because God invites you. The etiquette guru of another generation was Emily Post. And she was uh, asked one time what uh, a person should do if invited to the White House for dinner but uh, had another obligation to attend to. And Emily Post replied this way, An invitation to dine at the White House is a command, and it immediately eliminates all other invitations. I don't know what you've got on your mind and what you're being invited to do now, but the King of Kings is inviting you to His Son to repent, to turn to Him, and to trust Him alone. Everything else pales in comparison today. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray about it. Holy God, today we confess before all, before all peoples, before principalities and powers, before angels and saints above and demons and enemies below, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we do not do that here or anywhere else with any intimidation or hesitation. But dear God, we also confess that we are in need in such desperate need that our need necessitated the death penalty of your Son in our place for our crimes against your court. We also confess that His death and resurrection are sufficient to make us right. Dear God, thank you. We do not have to rely upon our behavior to get right with God, but the behavior of Christ. Thank you. And I want to pray that you'll help friends today to bring their need to you in repentance and turn with such a repentance and faith that the works that follow will show the mighty power 
of the presence of Jesus Christ. Friend, many others have come before you, and it's your time now. The staff will be standing here in front, and if your heart is humble and trusting in Christ, you're willing to abandon all for Him, or if you simply have questions, we'll be glad to help, and we're standing here ready and waiting to help you. Let's sing together, You Come.